Hey, pretty girl. Time to wake up. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Mulholland Drive. It's all recorded. It is all a tape. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. I've done quite a bit of research, knowing how hard you are to please. This one comes highly recommended. Hosted by Stuart. Well now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Jacob. Something tells me that this guy is connected to what's happening. And Arnie. Thank you very much for coming in. I know how busy you are. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Sometimes good things happen. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeaking.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. You coming? Uh-huh. Good. It means so much to me. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You want me to make this easy for you? No. No fucking way! It's not gonna be! It's not easy for me! Listener discretion is advised. You don't rush it, I don't rush it, okay? Now, we're gonna play this nice and close, just like in the movies. Today we're discussing Mulholland Drive, starring Justin Theroux, Naomi Watts, Laura Elena Herring, Ann Miller, and Robert Forrester, directed by <laughs> David Lynch. Forrester stars in this as much as... <laughs> Terry Dean Stanton starred in the straight story. Yeah, I mean, he's an actor we recognize, and he's here for two minutes. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I'm just so excited to be here. You can imagine how I feel. Stuart, not in L.A. There is no podcaster. This is all a tape recording of Jacob. And yet we'll probably still end up arguing about things. <laughs> that's the great part of all of it. It's all predestined. You're going to argue with the tape. <laughs> Jacob can stop moving his lips, but the voice will still keep coming. He'll <laughs> totally Milli Vanillying this whole thing. <laughs> Lynch said he would never do it again. TV was uh-uh, no way. He didn't even want to hear the letters T and V. After the flameout of Twin Peaks, American Chronicles, On the Air, Hotel Room. After seeing Hotel Room, I don't want him to go to TV either. But by the late 90s... Things had changed. Lynch had an itch to tell a story that was ongoing, and his agent definitely wanted him to get to a project that had the cachet and the potential for success that Twin Peaks in its prime did. And so he urged him to try again, and it should be said, we joked. When we were doing those Twin Peaks shows, we often joked about what the spinoff would be, right? And they actually had one in mind. I could not believe it when I read that. This was going to be Cheryl and Fenn goes to L.A. like Melrose Place for Twin Peaks. Yep, they actually briefly considered. I don't know how seriously, but Lynch and Frost had some discussion about what would it be like for Audrey Horn to step into Hollywood. And I think you can kind of see that. I think that is the germ of what we're watching. It is Twin Peaks the vibe, but put on a larger scale, a city that many people know. It's Instead of an isolated town in the Pacific Northwest, it's the place where all movies are born, where dreams exist, a dream city. But it's Lynch doing it without Mark Frost. 
he was off doing other TV series. He never said, I'm giving up TV. I think TV said, you should give up. He had a, a very short-lived, kind of like a Elmore Leonard-ish, Get Shorty-ish project called Buddy Farrow. Dennis Farina and James Whaley, they were detectives. I watched the very first episode of that because it had Dennis Farina and I love Get Shorty. Yeah. It was not Get Shorty. It was not. Yeah, it was It was short on Get Shorty charm, but it kind of had the vibe. And then he made, even worse, a horror series set in a hospital that wasn't with Stephen King, but on UPN called All Saints. I have no idea what that is. I didn't see. I don't remember. No. No one did. And I watched a lot of television in that period. I mean, I had three VCRs running simultaneously on three different networks, and I don't know that show. Yeah, but mostly he just retired and made Sherlock Holmes novels. He was moving on, and and Lynch, I think, you know, they remained friendly, but they just weren't collaborating at this point in the late 90s. Ron Howard was the one that came in and said, we love your pitch. It's still strange to me, not that Lynch would do television, but that he'd go back to ABC. Isn't that like remarrying the wife who cheated on you? What Lynch says is he didn't see it at the time that they hated him. He thought that they had a good relationship. He thought that they could try again. And there was new management there. You could say he went back to ABC, but ABC is not the company that had Twin Peaks on the air. The executives were telling him, your show was the rock star that died in the plane crash before his time. You created X-Files. You created Northern Exposure. You did all these great things, and we weren't ready for you. And they were very proud. I remember getting very excited to hear David Lynch is back. January 1999, before they had even shot a frame of film, this was coming back to television. It was going to get his primo Thursday night at 10 time slot back. Execs were actually saying things like, David Lynch has learned his lesson with <laughs> Twin Peaks. He has it all mapped out this time. It's all going to make sense. And we got other stars lining up, like Marilyn Manson and Helen Mirren were going to sh join the show later into the season. It was big. It was pre-sold. It was going to be. And then it wasn't. Well, Thursday night at 10 is still not a great time slot to give it because this is when ER was an unstoppable juggernaut. And that was Thursdays at 10. Well, yeah. Yeah. But it was where he originally found success. And they were willing to give him, well, they offered two budgets. You can either have four and a half million to make this pilot or we'll give you $7 million if you make a close ending to it. And you kind of do what they did with Twin Peaks. If you remember that 15 minutes of nonsense in which they caught the killer after, you know, going to bed. It was like, oh, wait, I know who it is. And he's in the boiler room of the hospital. <laughs> it's Freddy. Well, yeah, they the agreement was we'll give you $2.5 million more if you give us that for international markets. And we can air this pilot as a movie elsewhere. And Lynch begrudgingly said, said, okay, I'll do it like that. And so he shot this in February 1999. And then all of a sudden, ABC was not saying many nice things at all about Mulholland Drive. In fact, the exact response was, what the fuck is this? When the exec <laughs> saw the Club Silencio stuff, which was meant to be the tacked on ending to the movie. Okay, so that was for the European yes, cut. I could right. see them freaking out at that part because that's when I started freaking out too. Like, what am I watching all of a sudden? 
<laughs> it changes at that moment, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. The too slow, hard to follow, and Lynch didn't want to cut it down to 88 minutes. In order to be a two-hour movie on television, you have to leave room for commercials. He made two hours and five minutes and was like, well, go ahead and make it two and a half hour pilot. They're like, no, you gotta cut it down. And that was a real battle, but Lynch, because he wanted this to work, sat down with Mary Sweeney, his life partner and editor at the time, and they got it down to a cut, which I actually saw. It's floating around there in the in the dark web. It's very hard to find, yeah. Yeah, they actually <laughs> leaked what the executives ended up seeing, what could have been on television, the original pilot, if you will, which is a compromised vision of what the original script was. I've read that script, I've seen that pilot, and of course I've seen this movie we're here to talk about, what it got turned into. Uh, this will be my third viewing for that. But they did use footage from the pilot. Like, they didn't totally reshoot the whole thing for the movie, right? Oh, no, absolutely not, no. I actually also got my hands on that pilot, and I'd never seen Mulholland Drive before. I've now seen it three times, but one of those viewings, I did a picture-in-picture picture of the pilot and the final movie. And Lynch said in an interview I read that he was embarrassed by the pilot. He hates the fact that it's out there. It's such an embarrassment. It ain't all that different from the first 90 minutes of this movie. I think embarrassed is a far cry to go for. I think part of what he was saying was his poor quality. And then part of it was that, yes, that he wanted it to be a slower, more enriching, more enveloping, moody thing. He didn't like that it was cut down fast. I'll go ahead and say it. I actually think the pilot is very good. And I would have liked to have seen this TV series. But ABC didn't want it. And they decided to pass. Right as he was going to France to promote the straight story, where it premiered, Lynch had to go in front of a whole bunch of reporters and say, yeah, I thought I was making a TV show this fall, but now it doesn't appear that I'm going to be. And it was quite embarrassing, and he was quite mad, and no one was exactly sure why, even now, although the prevailing theory is that the Columbine shooting massacre. Entertainment was, forgive the pun, under the gun. People were saying, how could we expose our children to such violence? And David Lynch is a culprit for that. His shows are very violent. This episode has moments where humor is paired with people getting shot and killed in gratuitous ways. And so ABC, owned by Disney at this point, decided to go with Kevin Williamson's teen soap opera Wasteland instead. Got the Thursday night slot. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it only lasted three episodes and apparently had Adam Scott and Rebecca Gayhart. I watched one of those three episodes. <laughs> okay. I take it it wasn't Dawson's Creek. No. Yeah, and I had watched quite a bit of Dawson's Creek at that point, and I was a Kevin Williamson fan from Scream, and I did not like that show. But the one thing that Lynch said in another couple interviews I saw is that this was never even given a fair chance. He he claims, and I don't know how he'd know this unless he snuck into an ABC exec's house, but the one in charge of greenlighting this watched this at 6.30 in the morning while on the phone and eating breakfast and was across the room from it and then said, I don't get it, and so we're not doing it. And you know what? It's, it's hard to understand that now because TV has got so sophisticated. If it doesn't work on one network, somebody else can make use of it. But... 
Before the millennium turn, HBO didn't really have the series that it had. There weren't the cable outlets where you could do the things like Mad Men and and have experimental auteurist TV. David Lynch pioneered that. I do think that if this show had been developed even two years later, by the time it came out as a movie in 2001, I think that if it were a TV pilot in 2001, someone would have found a home for it and we would have a whole series to talk about. But because it wasn't, Lynch was crushed, and then his French financier friends stepped in and said, let's buy it. And it took him about a year, but they bought it from ABC. They got the pilot footage back and said, David, we're going to give you a little bit more money. Why don't you go ahead and create a theatrical experience? Now, of course, he had already been told to create a theatrical experience, but I think what they might have been telling him is, David, we need some sex and nudity in this thing. I just can't imagine what it would be like to be Naomi Watts or Laura Herring and (laughs) you're making a TV show, network television, owned by Disney. Right. On ABC. Yeah, it's going to be great. You're telling your mom. Yeah. And then you go away for like a year and a half and then you're brought back and it's David Lynch. Girls, I got a story for you. We're going to finish the movie and you're going to have to get it on. Yeah, you and you on the couch. So in that pilot, I I get it, it's for TV, but there is no love story between them in that pilot? No. In the 88 minute, there is nothing that would ever give the indication that they would ever take it there at all. There's one thing. The very first time in the actual movie, I started to wonder if they had a physical relationship. Naomi Watts, like, is caressing Laura Herring's face. That caress is in there, and David Lynch took that mild caress and turned it into a major thing in the movie. But no, nothing like that. And especially no hardcore full frontal, none of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, this was all jerry-rigged in here. And Lynch doesn't like to talk about it as a failed pilot because I think it delegitimizes what he ended up doing. But what he now says is he's grateful to ABC for rejecting it because it gave him time to meditate, gave him time to rethink it, and in his opinion and that of many critics, it became a better project by having new possibilities that were tagged on in the end. Yes, many of which that I have to agree with you, Arnie. It's hysterical to think of these aspiring actresses going, oh, great, it's going to be seen. Oh, my God, no! <laughs> like, what if one of them had said no to nudity? Like, what if they... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even know if you put no nudity clauses in ABC television contracts because it's ABC television. You wouldn't really need that. <laughs> it wouldn't even come into play. Yeah, it would never be a consideration. You'd have to do these scenes as a TV series. But this is the movie that made Naomi Watts. That up to this point, she was a friend of Nicole Kidman who just couldn't catch a break and who was giving some serious consideration to going back home to Australia because it just wasn't working out. Tank Girl just didn't open the doors. (laughs) Children of the Corn 4, I think it was, didn't work for her. Yeah, we've seen her in some early stuff. Golden Headphones. Yeah, she gets it now. But a couple of TV things, she, yeah, did not really make it until, yeah, this is where she became a household name. And I know she's still working, but... I don't know that she has much of the cash she had a while ago. She will be in the new season of Twin Peaks, as will Laura Herring. They're both coming. I don't know if it's going to be a crossover. 
Oh, God, please let them still be lovers. We'll talk about her acting here. Just don't go see her in St. Vincent, a Bill Murray movie where she plays a Russian prostitute, and it's so bad. So, so bad. Oh, you're right. That is the, her weakest moment. Well, however bad she seemed in Children of the Corn 4, she's worse in that movie. Yes, it's so worse. She's <laughs> the worst. You're right. The worst I've ever seen her. But yeah, again, this movie had a huge explosion. I'll go ahead and say it. When I first saw it in theaters, I didn't like the film. I thought that there were things that worked, but I I saw what I had gone in to see, a failed TV pilot, something that worked halfway through, and then they tacked some crap on the end, and it just was too bad because a TV show I probably would have loved became a very compromised project. Since that time, I saw it once on video and tried to see it more as a movie, but the important distinction about it this time, this is the first time that I'm seeing the movie after having lived in L.A. for over a decade, that I now can actually identify where they are, what it is, what Mulholland Drive is. I didn't know what that was. Oh, okay, that, that's a big deal. But yeah, movies in L.A. mean a lot to me just because I've lived here almost my entire life. I've driven on Mulholland Drive, so this is stuff that gets me into it. And I knew about this movie when it came out. I, again, I was a Lynch fan. I heard about all of the critical buzz, but this was one that I thought it was just going to be a straight noir thriller mystery i didn't know any of its backstory it kind of had an la confidential feel from the trailers of things so it was like one of those that i said i'd get to see never watched until we were covering it for this but yet because of this movie and it's being there when i first made it out to or i guess it was my second trip my first one where i rented a car and could do my own thing when i first came out to la in 2006 i thought i'd never get to la again so i had to do every la thing and one of those was i did go drive on mulholland drive yeah for the listeners that have not been familiar with the la landscape like me before i lived there it's really important for two reasons one it actually splits la in half i think of la as being two parts I mean, it's actually about 72 cities, but yes. half of those are the Southland. And that's kind of everything that you know. That's Hollywood, that's Santa Monica, that's Inglewood and all the neighborhoods from the rap songs, that's Beverly Hills. And then on the other side of that, on the other side of Mulholland Drive to the north is the Valley, you know, where Valley Girls come from and the porn industry, Boogie Nights. It's where I come from. I live in the Valley. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'm a Southland guy. So to us, I yes. hate to say it, Jacob, but we're like, nothing is over there. You don't ever want to go to the valley. <laughs> oh, no, there, there is nothing here. I, when I was watching this with my wife, she said, oh, is the big mystery? She's going to find out she's from the valley side of Mulholland Drive. <laughs> like, that is the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But the idea of splitting schisms, two that are also one, is it just starts with this road. This is the road that runs along the mountain. It's very winding and treacherous. Beautiful to look look at so many lookout points but if you aren't paying full attention you can go right over that rail and end your life on that trip i for some reason intentionally took some treacherous drives i drove on like the steepest roads of san francisco and then i drove mulholland drive and yeah I, i'll admit it i didn't ever like have to white knuckle it but i was very conscious of the shoulder yeah you should yeah, you, you keep one eye on the road, please. And Arnie, like you, this is my first time as well seeing this. And I was a little bit worried because this film has recently like been touted the movie of the new millennium of the 2000s. The best film. 
it's got quite a reputation that it's got to live up to, is that. And I didn't know any of that until after I watched it. And then I decided I'd Google it. And oh my God, the rabbit holes. Oh, dear Lord. I had no idea. I, I honestly have not heard this movie brought up in conversation anywhere ever <laughs> Except for when we decided to start doing it since like 2002. And that's weird to me because you love Lost Highway so much. And clearly, in many respects... This is a sequel to Lost Highway or a remake. (laughs) Yes, it's the TV version. If it is to Lost Highway what Twin Peaks was to Blue Velvet. But I had no idea of that. I hadn't seen it and nobody told me that. I thought this was just a straight up murder mystery. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, with Lynch, you never do know exactly what to expect. I do think it benefited by coming out at the time that everyone had access to the internet. And yes, we there are many multiple sites and many different theories floating out there. I intentionally tried to stay away from that. I intentionally didn't read what other people had interpreted. I didn't want to know what they had assembled. My sense is that people have gone very, very deep. And that that's a big part of this movie's appeal is that everyone is going to see a different movie in it. To some people, it will be meaningless. To others, it will tell you the secrets of the universe. On my second viewing, I formed my own opinions. And I didn't go too deep down the rabbit holes as far as what other people thought. I read a couple and I was like... I completely disagree with you. You just are so wrong. (laughs) So I just stopped reading those. But I was looking up things like, is the actress who's playing the bum, is that also somebody in a dual role? There's so many dual roles here. What I was primarily looking up was casting secrets. Mm. Now, I actually have a question about that. Is the bum somebody else? Oh, I don't want to talk about the bum. I'm going to have nightmares again. (laughs) I've seen her as the killer nun. Yeah, definitely a Blumhouse feel there. It is a woman. I thought it looked female. One of the things I read talked and referred to him as a him. And I guess when the guy's talking about his dream, he refers to the face as being a him. It looked like a woman, but it was not an actress who's played anything else. It was an actress who just discussed in an interview the terror of having to have moss put on her face because Lynch is like, we have to see her face and her movement. No masks, no latex and a nightmarish makeup process. Yeah, whatever else I felt about this movie, even though, like I said, I would have given this film maybe two, two and a half stars when I first saw it. I've never forgotten that face. And boy, Arnie, let's just get into it. I know it's not going to be easy for you, but why don't you give them the briefest of plot summaries we can begin to untangle the very twisty Mulholland Drive. I will say... What happens in complete factual terms of what I see happen on the screen, and then we will go into that. So if what I say doesn't make sense, sometimes neither does the movie. The film starts with a dark-haired, unnamed woman, played by Laura Herring, riding down Los Angeles's Mulholland Drive in the back of her limousine. Her driver turns around, points a gun at her, and orders her out of the car, but his nefarious plot is interrupted by some drag-racing teens that crash into the limo. The dark-haired woman suffers a head injury, giving her amnesia. Dazed, she walks down the hill to Los Angeles and into an apartment owned by aging Hollywood actress Ruth, who happens to be leaving for Canada for a role. Ruth had left use of her apartment to her niece Betty, a starry-eyed blonde played by Naomi Watts. Betty came to Hollywood to be a star, and thanks to her aunt, already has auditions lined up. Betty encounters the brunette, who says her name is Rita, taken from a Rita Hayworth movie poster hung in the apartment. Betty thinks Rita is a friend of her aunt's, so she lets her stay. 
But a call with Ruth reveals the truth, and Rita confesses to having no memory and nowhere to go. They open Ruth's purse to find stacks of $100 bills and a strange blue key, so Betty decides to play the part of amateur investigator and find out Ruth's true identity. Meanwhile, there's another storyline featuring movie director Adam Kesher, played by Justin Theroux. He's casting his new movie when he's told by his agent that the money men insist he hires a blonde named Camilla Rhodes. Adam refuses and walks out, only to find his wife is cheating on him with the pool cleaner, and the mobsters have shut down his production and frozen Adam's bank accounts. At a meeting with a strange cowboy, Adam finally agrees to hire the blonde, getting his money back and the productions back on. And the mobsters after Adam also appear to be seeking Rita, as they have many conversations and phone calls saying, The girl is still missing. The head of this organization seems to be Mr. Roke, a quadriplegic played by Michael J. Anderson. Not playing a little person. Also looking for the missing girl is Hitman Joe, who goes on a killing spree trying to find the woman. But back to the main story... Betty has an audition that goes very well, and then while at a diner, Rita remembers the name Diane Selwyn. Looking her up in the phone book, they go to the woman's apartment to find a rotting corpse in her bed. The two run out, shaken, and return to Betty's apartment, where the two women begin a torrid love affair. After their tryst, <laughs> Rita insists Betty go with her to a theater named Club Silencio. During the lip-synced performance, the two women begin crying. Then, in Betty's purse is suddenly a small blue box with a lock that seems to match Rita's key. They return to the apartment, but Betty disappears. Rita unlocks and opens the box before disappearing herself, seemingly sucked into the blue box. And this transports us to an alternate reality, where Naomi Watts plays Diane Selwyn, living in the same apartment where Rita and Betty found the dead body. Diane is a struggling Hollywood actress, never getting lead roles, and the jobs she does get are thanks to her lover, Carmilla Rhodes, now played by Laura Herring. But Carmilla has broken up with Diane, instead choosing to marry Adam, who is the director of her new film. This leaves Diane distraught and upset, and finally Diane hires Joe the Hitman to kill Carmilla. Joe says when the job is done, he will leave Diane a blue key. But the guilt over the murder drives Diane insane. She's plagued with visions of old people tormenting her and laughing. So she climbs into her bed, grabs a gun, and commits suicide as credits roll. Alright, so coming out of this, there's gotta be questions. I know we're going to be having a conversation of what really happened. What do you read this as? What's real? What's not real? We had that conversation with Lost Highway. I think we're going to have that conversation here. I think with every Lynch film, maybe except the straight story. Well, I had an existential crisis about that, though, because, I mean, in reality, none of it's real. These are all fictional characters in fictional worlds. And more, because I know what I know about the making of this and how all the ending stuff is just something that Lynch saw while doing transcendental meditation and tacked on and retconned and everything. It's like, is it even worth deconstructing? And then the other part of me was like, but if he'd done this in the writing phase instead of in the editing phase, if he'd written a draft and then rewrote it, then we would be deconstructing it like that. And so I really, I've been debating with myself in the three days since I first saw this film, is it worth the discussion or not? I think I'm going to have it, but yet I realize the masturbatory nature of such a conversation. And just jumping on to that, the way that I always talk about this is Viagra. 
It was developed as a blood pressure medication. <laughs> it was not meant to be used the way that it is, but boy, do people sure do enjoy the product. I don't think that it had to be conceived a certain way to be seen a certain way. And so I'm trying to find that movie here. This is the first time that I've tried to forget what I know about the pilot, even though we will be discussing the differences between the original conception and what it has become. But I've tried to see it as a close-ended film experience. I guess I don't really understand what the debate is. I mean, every script goes through multiple versions. Films get adapted from video games and books. Things are added because of that or taken away. I mean, that that is just the artistic process. So, yeah, until you have some kind of final product, that is when the story is finally figured out and told. Yeah, Casablanca was a disaster when they made it. I mean, nothing was working right. To watch that movie now, it's a, it's literally a perfect film. Yet, I think that if you're trying to analyze details from the TV pilot and in relation to stuff that comes later, if you did this in the writing process and you knew where you were going, you knew where Mulholland Drive ended, then you'd be able to foreshadow and put in clues and now people are going to be looking for clues that were never intended for that but that's what lynch is all about he doesn't want to think i'm so smart you have to figure me out i've created a product and now you tell me what it's about i mean i think he's comfortable with that i've watched multiple interviews with him where he says i don't know where the ideas come from i don't know i just thought of it and put it in there you tell me what it means you need to read his book catching the big fish he tells you where all the ideas come from and if you pay him a thousand dollars you can get the those ideas too well it's that's a, you don't pay him you pay the people that are manipulating and using him but you pay the foundation with his name on it yes i will say this because i what i'm picking up i think is something that i do agree with you if i had made the choices that he had to take what i had originally designed and to make the movie that we have there are scenes that i would have cut and yet I would hate to lose some of those scenes because they are some of the best moments here. And so, to me, this is a story mostly about two women that merge as one. And when the movie takes a look at peripheral characters and people that don't as easily integrate into the Betty and Rita storyline, yeah, I feel like that's stuff that probably could have been shaved off. I definitely think some stuff needed to be cut out of this movie and specifically out of the TV pilot because yeah, there's so many characters. I didn't even bother to name them all in the plot summary. So many subplots that if you're watching a TV pilot, these are the stories that are going to play out. I mean, we discussed this when we discussed the pilot of Twin Peaks and reviewed it both as a pilot and as the closed-ended movie. Why would you insert Nadine and her drape runners and the Norma Ed affair and all the things they do? Why would you insert all that if it were a movie? You insert it because it's not a movie, and yet Lynch left all that stuff in this quote-unquote movie. And I'll give it this, just to get into the movie a little bit, is that for the first half or hour and a half of the film it is about this glamorized hollywood so this yeah this kind of does feel like this weird lynch take on melrose place or something which i think is the right vibe for this reality he's setting up 
And I think, the, for me, you say Mulholland Drive. I don't know where that is before I came here, but I sure knew where Sunset Boulevard was. It's one of Lynch's favorite movies. It's one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, run out and see that film. It is about the studio system in, in Hollywood in 1950, narrated by a dead screenwriter. What we have here is perhaps the narration of a dead actress. So let's start going through this. When we start... I did not know what to expect when I pushed play. An iPod commercial? Yeah, it looks like the iPod commercial, a 1950s hop, was not what I was expecting. And these scenes in the opening, even before the credits, are the reason I'm so glad I watched it at least twice. <laughs> it is mentioned really late, really late into the movie, that Betty won a jitterbug contest. Well, technically, Diane won the jitterbug contest. Yes, I, I'm sorry. I will use, for the sake of simplicity, the actress that is playing the dual roles to talk about. <laughs> Naomi Watts, whatever she is at the end of the movie, mentions that she came, she comes from Canada, she won a jitterbug contest, and that is what brought her to Hollywood. There is a lot of clash in this right from the beginning. I mean, it's literally got a car crash. I do feel like some of that collision that we're going to see in this is old Hollywood, 1950s, retro, the way it used to be, and a modern sensibility. And so by starting with the jitterbug and then bringing in the jazz and all of that, Lynch is beginning one of many fisticuffs between then and now. Yeah, because it looks like later on they're making a period piece. The high-waisted pants and the poodle skirts in this doo-wop contest definitely made me think I was not in the 21st century. We talked about this with Blue Velvet. Is this in the 50s? Is it in the 80s? Lynch really does like to play with that, bringing the old and the new. And so you get, why would a jitterbug contest even bring you to Hollywood? It's such a weird story. <laughs> even in Canada, that cannot be how Canadians behave. No. And that's the story when I think we're in reality of the movie that's told. Even if you want America's Got Talent for your jitterbugging, you go to Vegas, not L.A. But keep in mind that swing dance craze that started with swingers, it was kind of, I mean, it was dead by this point. You mean swing kids? Are you, well, I don't know that anyone followed swing kids, but that whole let's do the retro thing and the guy from the Straight Cats came back and no one wanted him to, but they still listened to him. Yeah, I, I feel like we had gone through that retro cigar bar swing dance kind of craze so it wasn't totally out of place in 2001 to see this on the big screen but that quickly fades away we see betty in the spotlight with the old people and the next thing we see is blurry pov a harsh reality if one was a fantasy here comes reality crashing right into it another contusion here is that we see pink bed sheets of what will ultimately be the bed of the murder victim and I'm, again, so glad I watched this because the first time I saw it, how am I supposed to remember pink sheets at this beginning, right? There's so much to absorb in this opening. This is a movie that demands multiple viewings. Yeah, I would agree with that. I didn't even tie the sheets together. I just know we zoom into like a pillow and go, oh, okay, dream stuff's going to be happening, obviously. Why would else would you zoom in on a pillow? I thought suffocation. There was some heavy breathing going on in the sound mix. I was going back to the question of could you suffocate yourself with a pillow if you tried? That's kind of where I was going. I thought I was watching a murder mystery i figured there'd be a dead body on that bed and i was right on that one but it wasn't at all how i thought the old people there in the beginning 
when I was watching this the second time, I'm like, how are these old people there? Who are these old people? I mean, throughout the film, we're going to see that they're on the plane, I guess, when Betty gets to LA and then later on, they're going to be mean phantoms. Yeah, they're travel companions. That Haven't you ever met somebody on a flight and you chatted them up and then you ended up talking while you collected your luggage? And this old couple, everything here when Naomi Watts, whoever she is, gets off the plane, it's so idealized. Like this old couple, oh, just I hope you have the best of luck. Then they do some real creepy smiles that Lynch's love when they go off in their car. That was really reminding me of Eraserhead, the parents with the smiles. Yes. Arnie, it is the parents from Eraserhead. That is Mary X's mother reprising that role. Same actress. Oh, wow. Oh, didn't know. Isn't that the father, too? No, he's dead. So they got someone that kind of looked like how he should. (laughs) And then Naomi Watts turns around. Oh, no, my bags are gone. And the taxi driver. Oh, I've got them for you. I've already put them in the truck. Like, all of this tells me, like, this is too glamorized. This is unreal. Gypsy cab, right? This is the cabbie who's going to, like, charge you 80 bucks or not give you your luggage back. Yeah, Lyft didn't exist yet. But, yeah, this is the fantasy of what coming to Hollywood is. I want to say when I came here, I never entertained this. But some people do. They want to be discovered. Yeah, there are people that do. It's weird. There is that belief that all they have to do is appear and the walkways will open up for them. Usually they end up hookers, don't they? Or just waiters into their 60s. I think we might see what actually the reality of what usually happens as to what's not. But in contrast to Betty literally descending in a plane, we also have a descent of our other main character, who doesn't have a name. I'm going I'm to call her Laura Herring. That is the actress inhabiting this brunette part. Betty is blonde. Laura Herring is brunette. I'll probably end up calling her Rita. I went really hard in my notes to use the names during the scenes, and she goes by Rita. Yes, which isn't her name and and never was, but she sees an old 40s noir poster at some point, and because she's been asked to name her name, she goes with Rita Hayworth, Rita. All we know about her before she gets amnesia is that she seems to be living the good life. Maybe she's a successful actress, maybe she's just a rich woman that lives in the Hollywood Hills, but she's traveling along Mulholland Drive when two goons pull over and appear to either be kidnapping her or shooting her. I really parsed this out. I mean, she's in the back of a limo. It's the driver and his companion who pull the gun on her. She's got very expensive. They look like real pearl earrings, well done makeup. She's got this look on her face that she doesn't look overly kind or maybe she she just got maybe resting bitch face. And I really paid attention on the second viewing. I did some freeze framing. No wedding ring. This is important because, as I said in the plot summary, Camilla was going to get married to the director in the who lived off Mulholland Drive. And so I really freeze frame to see, is there a wedding ring on her finger? But there is not. She is not married, or at least not wearing her ring at this time. Yeah, she's told to get out of the car at gunpoint, and I figure... She's going to get whacked here. There's this mystery about this film production where you have to hire this Camilla. So I'm like, okay, so they were going to whack her. They're killing the competition. Well, not they. Betty or Naomi Watts is going to whack her. So are these the people that she ends up hiring? Well, I know that when we get to a different reality, but in this, what I'm calling this first half of... It could be the same one. And I think just like Lost Highway, this movie, my interpretation of it is that it goes in a loop. So the beginning is the end, the end is the beginning. And so what I'm seeing here 
is, I think, when Naomi Watts has hired the hit, this is the hit that happens, and yet it's what starts the movie, and the hit is not successful. It's interrupted by some drag racing teens. Yeah, going back to that 50s iconography, that this feels like something from American Graffiti. Yeah, and that's why I was really paying attention to her finger, because if this is taking place after everything we see in the second reality, that's why I wanted to know, is she married? Or even engaged, and there was no ring. He did not put a ring on it, if that even happened in this reality. She could be engaged. I mean, without a ring. I don't know. But I, I understand what you're getting at. You're establishing the fact that who she is at the end isn't quite who she is in this moment, seemingly. And we won't know anything more conclusively because, yes, the car collides. I think the goons are dead. And I think the kids are dead. There's another car that just keeps on driving. I guess they figure they win. It was all the drag race. <laughs> but our heroine, our brunette, is going to stumble out of this wreckage and walk down these Hollywood Hills to Franklin Avenue, to Sunset Boulevard, to pass out in the bushes of the very same courtyard that our dear Betty is going to come to the next day. And it is two women headed to same maybe identity or the same space. I will say this. In film school, there is a whole genre of movies that do what this movie is going to do. There's, it was really pioneered by a Swedish filmmaker named Ingmar Bergman. The Seventh Seal, right? Yeah, that's probably his most famous film, and Lynch takes a lot from him. I do feel like the videographer, the Robert Blake character from Lost Highway, is from a film called Hour of the Wolf. There's a very similar character. He makes Bergman homages. Bergman made a whole film about how an actress who stopped speaking merged her identity with the nurse that took care of her. It was called Persona. It's also one of his more famous films. But I feel like many people that have been trained in film school end up wanting to remake that film. I have seen this film many, many times. Mulholland Drive is not the first or the last or maybe even the best to do what's going on here with the blurring of identities. Male directors tend to be fascinated with the way that women's identities can be fluid. And so there is, I mean, just recently, a movie called Neon Demon that I really felt like took a lot from this. Robert Altman made Three Women. I mean, so many films. I do feel like what when Lynch went into himself to meditate, probably the answers that he found were in film school and with Igmar <laughs> Bergman. And you mentioned The Courtyard. I did look this up because I thought this was the exact same complex they used for Melrose Place filming, which was a real building also in the LA area, but it is not. It's just a very similar looking courtyard. Right. So what I think, I'll just go ahead and say in the large view, I think what we see here in the beginning, this Rita character keeps lapsing into concussive dreams. She keeps having to sleep. Towards the end of the movie, the Betty character, who will acquire a different name, ends up sleeping a lot because she's depressed and because she's been jilted. And what happens in the beginning is mirrored almost inexactly with the other woman at the end. So you're watching the same thing done in two different styles, brunette and blonde. And that's, of course, a very simple way of doing this. You know, the fact that one is named Betty, I was really shocked they didn't just go Veronica, right? 
Yeah, well, yeah, but Betty is just such a steer again, a 1950s, yeah, Archie type of persona. And I want to compliment the way that the actresses play it. I know some people grouse about the acting in this, but Lynch likes broad 50s style acting. That's what you're getting in these early scenes. It will move more towards a modern sensibility of acting towards the end. But what he's asking for, I think, is really hard to do convincingly. And I really like Naomi Watts' chipper and yet believable take on a girl from Canada who's come to fulfill her dreams. Yeah, I'll agree. I actually think there's a very smooth transition to her character. She starts off all wide-eyed and stereotypical ingenue in L.A., completely unprepared for the harshness of the actual city. But... Just with her investigation into the identity of Rita, I think she becomes more grounded and a little bit more serious and a little bit less smiley. And then her character does have one major turn that we'll talk about in the dream state, if this is indeed a dream state. I'll just throw out my thesis, and I I don't know that this is controversial. Because we start with the pillow, I take the first 90 minutes of this movie to be a dream had by Naomi Watts as Diane. And I hate that interpretation. I agree. That was the way I experienced it. The first time I saw this movie, I'm like, you mean to tell me everything that I just saw was just a dream of some yeah, lesbian that's broken up about her lover jilting her and getting famous? That's stupid. I think for me, I needed this movie to be more than that in order to give it a pass. And I don't know if I'd necessarily call this a dream Again, I see this as a different version of Lost Highway, I guess, starting females instead of males, where, yeah, this is someone creating a story, trying to repurpose what's actually happened to her, as we'll see once we go inside the box and give it that Hollywood feel. Yeah, going into that box, that is an image that, for this last viewing, that really stuck with me. We are actually going to see an actress in a box. When we see the movie within the movie, getting the part, you audition literally in this box, lip-syncing to a song. I feel like a lot of this is about performance. And that what we see are characters that are rehearsing a scene that may or may not come true, depending on how you want to interpret it. But a lot of what strikes me is just the way that it's fluid. The way that these two characters seem to be at odds when they meet in the courtyard. They will fall in love in the middle, and then they will flip roles at the end. So if you hate the interpretation that this is a dream or a fantasy... Yeah, because, I mean, don't you... I mean, who wants to think that it was a waste of time, right? That was a waste of time if you're telling me all it was was this melodrama. So what do you think it is? Well, what I just said, that I think that this is a performance piece in which actors explain how they do their craft, how they lose their own sense of identity to become another person, to become their the object of their creation, and, and leave behind the elements of themselves, kill off elements of themselves. So there is no reality in this. It's a, yeah, it's a symbolic act. To me, I don't see that you can take these metaphors and things and find a true story hidden in it. To me, it feels more like an exploration about, yeah, the art of acting and, and what it is specifically in Hollywood, what is put on women to live up to the expectations usually put upon them by men, that all of these signals that they're taking about what they should be and do is usually at the behest of external forces, which in the universe of Mulholland Drive is anything from a paraplegic mobster to a creature behind Denny's. 
And that is could very well be the symbolism of the film. But narratively, do you believe there to be... I mean, obviously there is a twist. You know, one of my interpretations of Lost Highway is that it was just a metafiction about a director trying to create characters for a movie. It doesn't have to be a straight narrative. You could explore ideas. I And I think Lynch is good at that, just taking very abstract ideas and making them just a wee little less abstract. Like, his films are still very abstract, but he does try to give them a body and a physicality. And case in point, my favorite scene in this movie, arguably, I think there's like a couple that are pretty standout, but definitely one of my favorites is this one that seems to have no tether to the story at all other than where it's set. In Winkies, which is, I've been here. Have you been to the Denny's on Sunset? I've been there, yes. Oh my God, is it scary. It is. It used to be have this like old Wild West theme, except yes. it's gone to seed. And you just don't want to sit in, you don't want to go there. You don't. And apparently David Lynch actually did and got scared by a bum. This actually came from his life and he just held on to it and created this magically freaky little scene. Again, I am interested in the narrative and trying to figure out what the hell this scene is telling me. This scene was not in the pilot I saw. It was not in the shorter version. I would have thought for sure it was in that pilot. Like, I saw this, and this bum doesn't come back for a very long time. Like, I thought this was just in here to mess with your head. The callback is so much further down the road in this film. No, so I think this is talking about dreams. This is why I started thinking, what is a dream? What is reality? Because you've got these two guys sitting there, and one saying, I had this dream, you were in it, there was this scary face I never want to see again. Even the first time I saw this without knowing what was new and what was old, this scene was calling out to me as an interpretation thing. Knowing that it was added when Lynch had his inspiration for how this should end, now I take this as even more important. Because... The guy with the bushy eyebrows is going to come back. We're going to see him one more time. The uh, guy he's with, who's the non-believer, doesn't come back. And the bum does come back very much later. But this is where I start wondering, yeah, about the dream, about the face you don't want to see ever outside of a dream. And what does the bum represent? To me, I think the bum is this universe's Bob, right? I mean... A mystical being who brings death? Yeah, I agree that I think there's several of those auditioning for that, Arnie. And this, I feel like there are many people trying to be the little man for Mulholland Drive. And it's a great scene. It really works within the context. I am almost instantly gripped with the idea of the way that he's trying to smile his way through reliving this nightmare and telling himself that what he's experiencing is going to be different than the identical dream that he had. I don't really find a whole lot of benefit on applying this exercise into the scope of the larger whole. I just feel like, no, this was a subplot that would have played out in a soap opera, and now it just stands alone as a cool little nugget that probably should have been cut. Was it in the pilot you saw then? Because it wasn't in what I downloaded. The bum shows up at the end. Yeah, here's the thing. It was in the original script. It was always intended to be there. It was in a different place. 
and it got cut when they had to cut down to 88 minutes. Lynch saw the wisdom in saying, we need to remove this if I only have 88 minutes to play. I think he would have used it in the second episode. They go to Winkies later, and I think it would have played just as well to the next day after they've gone to Winkies to see these two guys talking there and to go behind the restaurant and see that face. It could have still been used. And my guess is they would have included it in episode two. I mean, I think what's cool about it is at one point we go to this restaurant and it feels like a place where two characters have lots of breakthroughs and they're like, oh, this is great. We're going to figure out a mystery. And then at the same time, for somebody else, it's a living nightmare. And I thought these guys were cops, right? I mean, they're dressed in suits. Earlier, we saw a couple of cops talking about the car accident. We saw Robert Forrester, who is never going to show up in this movie for the rest of the running time. Yeah, he had one other cut scene that's worthless where, yeah, they're just the ones investigating the car crash. And was there a girl that's missing? I'm, you know, inclined to believe at some point they would get closer to finding Rita. Yeah, I mean, there's mobsters involved, there's murderers involved. And so you've got to figure at some point the cops are going to come to the rescue. We know that Lynn wanted to hire Robert Forrester to be Sheriff Truman in Twin Peaks. So here we have him in that cop role for this TV series. You gotta figure he was going to play a bigger part. And instead, he gets a cameo and an and before his name. You know, but I didn't think these guys were cops. I took it to mean that this could be like a therapist. You know, it is L.A. after all. Most people are on the couch and his patient. I would hope a therapist doesn't openly mock his patient (laughs) the way this guy does. You would hope. And yet, <laughs> I have seen and known therapists that do. I just took it as two colleagues. Maybe maybe they work together. Maybe they're some kind of friends. Plus, it looks like the skeptic, does he have a name? Yeah, well, in the script, they do. Dan is the Freddy cat. Herb is the skeptic. Okay, Herb seems to be picking up Dan's bill. If it was the therapist, I think Dan would be paying. Yeah, but it has a therapeutic relationship. Indeed, all that we really understand is that Herb seems to have heard this before. He's like, oh boy, you've had a dream. I know that you go to this place. And maybe that's the reaction David Lynch gets a lot when he's explaining things at his favorite place. But he loves diners. He loves this environment. To him, this is a safe place. To see it turn into a scary place is a nightmare. And I love the way he makes it scary because when they're talking about this, oh, I had this dream and it's this face that I would never want to see outside the dream. I'm like, no, you've made it so scary. You cannot live up to it uh, unless it's going to be Robert Blake from Lost Highway with that pancake makeup (laughs) poking his face out. How are you going to live up to this story you just told? There's no way you're going to show this creature now because you've built it up so much. So when they go to reenact the dream and the way Lynch, he just he holds that camera and it just goes on for a beat longer. Okay, there's no face. And then the. It's the slow reveal, the way that bum just slowly slides out from behind that wall. I still see that face when I close my eyes to go to bed at night, and it unsettles me. It's still giving me nightmares. I remember jumping in the theater. I mean, I remember jumping out of my seat. It is such a quick cut, too. I remember, you know, after the screen had cut away, I still had an image in the mind's eye of what I saw. I'm like, I think it was a woman with, like, soot on her face or something. There's that smile. Yeah. Oh, it's unsettling. I think Lucas ripped this off the very next year when he did Attack of the Clones. There's a character that you just barely see called Passel Argenti. I know the one you're talking about, yes. (laughs) I think Lucas stole this look, only turned it green instead of black. But again, as cool as this scene is... For the movie that I think that Mulholland Drive has become out of necessity, I'd cut it. 
it just doesn't, to me, have a whole lot of consequence in this story. Oh. See, and I take it as the heart of the film explaining the whole dream sequence. I take the explanation of the bum and saying this is a face I'd never want to see outside of a dream. And I'm like, this is the specter of death. And when we get to the real world, the real reality, the bum is like the only person who's still a bum, right? Everybody else is kind of an alternate self. I mean, it could be Naomi Watts slash the only woman in this. I mean, what we see is women in, in various states of success that Hollywood could actually reduce our sweet Betty into this is a possible reading. When I was going down the rabbit hole, I wondered if that was Naomi Watts under all that. Sure. Yeah, because we're going to see her become, I think, a hooker like at some point. Look, uh, there's a lot of this stuff in this first part where I'm like, oh, you could cut this scene. Like, I love Billy Ray Cyrus getting beat up. That's awesome to watch, but does it need to be here? Like, it does feel like, oh, here's all the subplots for a TV show. Because the, to me, this is just an emotional metaphor for whatever David Lynch is trying to get at, whether it's how women are treated. Maybe he's trying to make up for all the misogyny he's been accused of by, like, trying to show, oh, okay, here's the sympathetic film. I don't know how sympathetic it is, though, about what women go through in Hollywood. And in the end, he's going to completely exploit them in almost a pornographic method, but... It, well, exactly, because it's David Lynch. I guess he can't escape that. But I do just these metaphors and these tangents. It's working for me this time where Lost Highway had these moments, but they just, I don't know. I think because there's just such an emotional vibe to Lynch's films, if you're not into that emotion, then maybe it doesn't work for you. And if you get into that, they do work for you because this scene, it's scary. And you're right. It doesn't need to be in here, but it's so pivotal for me. You, you got to have this in here. And this is like one of those scenes when Wyndham Earl is talking about the Black Lodge, where I start writing down and parsing every word for its meaning. I think this is so so important. And Jacob, you mentioned Lost Highway. And I'll agree that up until I'd say about about the half hour point, I'm definitely enjoying this as much as Lost Highway and seeing so many similarities. And then it expands and then it tries to go into TV land. I didn't mind the guys at Winkies. Of course, I didn't know that we would never see them again either. But when we start getting into what Stuart was talking about with the paraplegic mobster and all the stuff really that circles around a new character, the director, Adam Kesher, that's when I realize I'm not finding this to be as tight or as interesting as Lost Highway. I really do like seeing Michael J. Anderson again. Did you recognize him as that character? He's got a full body. Yeah, I'm like, hey, that looks like the little man, but it's full size. It can't be <laughs> until I looked it up. I guess they gave him some longer legs. I wonder how that conversation went. Much like I wonder how it was to tell the two TV actresses you're going to get naked and kiss. I wonder how it is to say to Michael Anderson, you know, you're perfect for this role if you weren't short. And so we're going to make this whole fake body for you and put you in it. But I did recognize him. He doesn't talk much, but man, his head is really unique. It's almost like a stewy head in its shape. And so I, I noticed him. <laughs> he looks like there are Francis Bacon paintings, if you know that painter. Yes. Come to life. <laughs> I mean, it is a really a, a startling vision to see this guy. You're not quite sure what's wrong with him, but something feels very wrong. And of course, he's in a very Lynchian art-directed room. He seems to have all the control in the world, and yet he's immobile. He seems to be paralyzed. All he can do is uh, speak onto the phone and order 
who knows what, a, a series, a chain of phone calls that lead maybe all the way back to Betty's apartment. And he's in a room full with red curtains. I'm like, wow, you put the little man in a red room again. Okay. I think that one of the joys of painting, if we were to treat this as I talked about with Eraserhead, an art gallery, is that you like to see motifs. You like to see the artist paint the lilies this way and then go to the next picture and still see those lilies. And I think at this point, Lynch has a vocabulary. He has certain things that he brings back again and again and again. Meaning can be ascribed to it however you want. The interpreter, the viewer can give it that meaning, but it's always present and it's a signature of this artist. And everybody says they're looking for the girl. And I take it to mean that girl is Rita, right? She's the one who's missing because of the amnesia. She's disappeared. But there's also the scene with Dan Hedaya and Angelo Badalamenti as, I'm guessing, mobsters. I, I don't know. I don't want to stereotype Italians, but... Or the De Laurentiis family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're trying to get a different actress named Carmilla or job. So I'm not sure what woman they're looking for. I don't know that we ever, I, it's, it's Rita, right? To me, that's the point. That is what Mulholland Drive is about. If I'm going to boil it down into this, this is the girl. Well, who's the girl? It's whatever they're trying to make it. And that all these women are struggling to create an image that will fit the expectations of this town. And it is a cruel task done by horrible task minds. You could look at them as mobsters or monsters, as this movie does. But to me, this is the story of an aspiring woman who wants to be the woman in the limo. She has a line in the apartment where she's like, you know, I would rather be a successful actress than a movie star. But, you know, she really, she wants the fame. She wants all of it. She wants the house on the hill. She wants that limo. And so in order to become her they have to meld they have to merge they have to make love they have to become the girl and so when they're talking about this pursuit of this phantom it's an ideal that cannot be achieved and sometimes you end up a washed up waitress and sometimes you do get to be in that limo but it usually ends up badly no matter which direction you go everyone ends up dead and I just noted not trust these Castiglione brothers because, like, they get him the best espresso in Hollywood, and it's not even good enough for him. Artie, I, I think I'm seeing all the Twin Peaks stuff now. We got coffee coming back, and it's <laughs> being spilled. Yeah, the way he spits it out, though, it's weird. It's like a weird consistency. It's not like pure espresso. Well, remember that coffee in the red room? Yeah. That would change shape. It comes out like he's spitting out chocolate milk or something. It's really gross. And I love the reaction of the two sycophants at the head of the table who have tried to get him the best espresso there is and just to see him spit it out. And Dan Hedaya, I also assume he would have had a bigger part in a tv series because i mean come on he's from the tortellis right you don't just get him for one scene <laughs> and i always do like him oh yeah i mean i think I, I think a plot of this would have been that in the old days the studio system was run by this head that they controlled everything they told the director what to do what the actors to do nobody had any control but whoever ran the studio in modern hollywood it's the investors and in this case they're all mobsters. So really, which would you rather want to answer to? It's it's not like you get a, a happy ending in today's day. Again, I w did wonder how much of this was autobiographical with Lynch. 
with him as Adam in this film, this director, where all the control, especially, you know, TV again and post, even with Twin Peaks, he didn't have that much success. And control was taken away from him. I, I'm seeing all this in there. So I'm going to see parallels when we go into the box and who Adam is. But this does feel like TV to me, but I'm enjoying all this because I'm seeing, oh, okay, this could be how Lynch feels, wrestling for control over Twin Peaks or whatever TV series he's doing. Yeah, I definitely got some of that just because... He's an auteur, but he's never been successful enough to call 100% of his own shots. You know, he's never been profitable enough for that. And in the end, it's money that gives power in Hollywood. But I don't see this as a Lynchian character. I mean, we've seen Lynch himself on screen. I wondered who he was trying to mock. I, You know, whenever I see a director there, especially an impotent director like Adam is in this, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, is that trying to be Michael Bay with the black outfit and the ego? Or who is he trying to go for with this? And it's played by Justin Thoreau, who I didn't know he was an actor. I, I knew him as the writer of Tropic Thunder. Oh, yeah, no, he's definitely an actor. And probably most famous famously known as Jennifer Aniston's husband, but he's been in stuff. This is kind of his claim to fame, but he's on the TV show The Leftovers right now. Like I said, I didn't know. I only knew his name because I was really into Tropic Thunder and he was doing a lot of interviews at the time. I think it's Lynch, honestly. I think that, you know, Lynch is kind of famous for his quaff, his hair. Yeah, whenever you see someone with hair sticking up, you think it's Lynch. <laughs> You know, Lynch was considered a handsome young director, and a lot of people did swoon and like him. He's not Lynchian in his language. This guy, particularly in the 88-minute original pilot cut, is snarky and he's angry. But Isabella Rossellini did say that Lynch has that side, that he doesn't want people to know, but he do he is vain. He does want to be perceived as cool. And that that is the struggle here, is that, you know, he wants to be in control. We know Lynch has struggled, Dune being the most famous case, of wanting to have artistic control and having it taken from him. I think he's relating to it, but at the same time, making the character original enough that it's not just David Lynch on the screen. But it's a version of David Lynch, a younger, more naive David Lynch that didn't know that the studios will screw directors even when they're talented. I saw certainly the power play of art versus commerce here and the fact that he thought he had all the upper hand by being the director. And to most people, the director seems to have all the power to just see that the whole movie will be taken away. And then that scene that goes where the guy, I think his name was Ray from this, it's Adam's agent goes down to see, yeah, Mr. Roke and shut the whole thing down. Mr. Roke is really in charge. No matter, in, in New Hollywood, the person that is providing you with the money is the one that is going to call the shots. It's not necessarily the studio. It's whoever is ahead of this production. And so it appears that, yes, this movie is being funded by mobsters. And thus, you have all of these Hollywood suits that are having to you know, find the perfect espresso and just yeah go through all these secret doors and do whatever is wanted. I love the fact that Roke doesn't even give him an answer. He's like, so I think this means we should shut down the production, right? And it's like <laughs> nothing. Crickets. This guy is just like, I'm not, your question's so stupid. I'm just going to stare you until you turn away and, and go and the lights will just dim as dim as you are. It's Yeah, he's really scary. I do feel like Michael J. Anderson has got a real 
he doesn't have to move in order to intimidate us. He can just say the word and we're dead. I know that when Adam gets back to his mansion and they have a scene that, honestly, this is another one I would have cut with Achy Breaky Heart and his wife in bed together, <laughs> that eventually some goons come and they are, in some cuts, it's clear that's the Castiglione brothers goon. He's working for the producers. Yeah, I got that only when I watched the pilot. I thought, you know, there's a lot of mobsters going around here. We'll talk about another scene with a hitman. There's the two guys in the limo. Yes. Is everyone working for Roke? Yeah, I don't know that that's true. Are you talking about the guy who shows up and beats up the wife in Billy Ray Cyrus? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the big goon. Because, I, yeah, I had no idea what that scene was supposed to be. It is shown much clearer in the pilot. They had a couple more scenes that this is retaliation. He actually sticks around after beating up Billy Ray to break all of Adam's golf clubs. And that's because Adam used a golf club to bash up that limo. And then they go back out and the Castiglione brothers are in the limo outside. And he's, he's like, he's not here. But there's a lot of mobsters, some of whom are working together and some of whom are not. I read this as we have two different groups of mobsters. We've got Mr. Roke's people who include the Castiglionis who are, well, I guess we've got three groups. We've got Mr. Roke's people who are looking for the missing girl. And then you've got the Castiglione brothers who have their own goon who aren't looking for a missing girl. They're trying to promote their girl. I don't know that they don't work for Roke though. Right? Yeah, I took it that they worked for Roke. That Roke wants Camilla in the movie. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I guess so they are all under Roke because Ray goes to Roke. If I'd seen the Castiglione's with Roke, it would have been a little clearer. But then you've got the third set who are the hitmen who, in what I call prime reality, Naomi Watts's character hired to kill Rita Carmilla. So... I think there's all those different groups going on. Well, you also get this moment at the Park Hotel where Adam's hiding out where, like, the bankers are looking for him and have taken all his money and credit. I think the bankers are the Castiglione's. Or... I was wondering if that was, yeah, code for gangsters. Yeah, someone for Roke. Because eventually he's going to go see the cowboy and the cowboy's going to be like, you're going to cast this woman. And that all goes back to Roke again. Yeah, I believe that Roke is at the top of the pyramid. That all that you're talking about, everyone on some level will fall on their sword for Roke. He controls all. He is looking for the girl. He is the one that decides above all others who the girl is going to be. And so all of these factions answer to him with the exception of Joe. I think Joe is something else. He seems fledgling. He strikes me as probably someone that used to be a surfer or an actor, and when times got tight, as he's joking with Ed here in the beginning, he had to look for some other stuff. He mentions that he is hardly making ends meet, and he's, quote, doing some stuff for this guy. That might be Roke. I don't know. But he definitely doesn't feel as polished as these mobsters when he kills Ed for his black book full of famous phone numbers. No, th this seems hilarious. This is so Coen Brothers-esque to me. It feels like Fargo or Burn after reading. Just the comedy of this whole assassination. And neither of these guys were the drivers of the limo, right? We barely get to see the drivers in the limo. And I tried to get a look at them without seeing their hair. But 
I wondered because you've got Ed here laughing about a car accident. Like, can you fucking believe it? It was a car accident. And Joe's there like laughing with him. But if we take what we know from the end of the film, and again, this Mobius strip. Well, those people are dead. I mean, it should be said that the goons in the limo were dead. Were they? They were there in the wreckage. Yeah. Okay. So I think that they've heard it through the grapevine or through the phone calls that Rook makes that this is how the girl got away. But I don't think that they were the ones actually doing the hit. Just because Joe gets hired later to kill Camilla doesn't necessarily mean that he's the one physically pulling the trigger. Yeah, I think, though, that he's on the hook for Carmilla's death. I think that because of what we find out later, Joe orchestrated that hit that got bumbled. And so Joe is right now playing cleanup, which is why he shoots Ed for that book that never comes into play again. But it's an L.A. thing. I mean, I do think, you know, nowadays... It's the black book with all the numbers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it works different, but in 2001, it still would have been a thing. Who is the most powerful is the person that can call anyone at a moment's notice. So, so the hacker who gets your iCloud account is the most powerful. These days, perhaps it is a hacker, but back then, yeah, it would be a physical book. And it's just that this movie has the same idea too many times. I like the idea of having a book, but then we also have the key, and they do it so often. Often that I again, if this were a movie, you streamline. You don't let there be so many threads floating around. But I love this scene so much. I agree. Like I throughout the film, I'm wondering, okay, what is that book then? What? Why did they set up this black book? But man, I love this. Like I was cracking up out loud during this scene. Yeah, it, it is funny, and it's very out of place in the tone of this movie. I wouldn't say that this film has a lot of laugh-out-loud comedy moments. You know, it has very few fish in its percolator. And yet the Billy Ray Cyrus scene and this scene, which are pretty close in secession, are those moments. Yeah, to me, the problem is, I actually think the TV version does a better job with this. It, it, it edits the scenes in a different way. We don't forget about Betty and Rita. What happens here is that that storyline almost gets dropped after all of these scenes with... Adam and the mobsters and Joe and all of that, you barely pay attention to what should be the main thrust of it all. And so I'm not disagreeing with you. This is an enjoyable, yeah, Coen Brothers is a, a great comparative here that he has to keep killing because a, a mistake <laughs> happens and then vacate the scene when he triggers the fire alarm. Again, I don't get the sense that he's a serious killer. He's a fledgling killer. If this has something to do with the in-the-box reality, I'll call it, at the end of the film, like, is this... Naomi Watts trying to justify, oh, I actually hired this bumbling guy that probably didn't kill my girlfriend, or we don't know how true to life this first half version of Joe is to his other counterpart. We only get one more scene with him. Yeah, and the other thing that gets me about this dream reality or whatever is that Adam does have the cheating wife who's sleeping with Billy Ray Cyrus, who I did not recognize. I'm not a big achy-breaky fan. 
my wife recognized him somehow and we had to stop the film because I'm like, there's no way. But yeah, it's Billy Ray. The weird part is that David Lynch was actually listening to him, that they got this part because David Lynch was listening to his music and said, get that guy. He never even seen him. He probably has some perverse enjoyment of like achy, breaky heart. Yeah, I could see Lynch going for it. And Billy Ray acted. He had, I think, a sitcom and he was on Miley's show on the Disney Channel. So, but we're going to find out in the reality the prime reality the second in the box reality that adam's wife did sleep with a pool boy and he he has a very funny line she got the pool boy i got the pool i'd like to buy that judge of rolls royce so a lot of things happening here are the same it's so tangled manufactured i feel like a lot of that stuff is contrived so that it does bookend but it isn't why I'm here. Again, the story that I'm grooving to is what these two women are doing. What is bringing them closer together? If you found out there was a squatter in your apartment, I don't know your first instinct would be to help them. It would be probably to, yeah, call Coco and the police and get <laughs> her out of there. But Betty, is it sexual attraction? Is it because she covets the pearls and the life that she could have? Is it... Again, if you look at this in purely in terms of symbolism about what an actress goes through, is she trying to forget her own self so that she can become the character? Now, that's very single white female. I just took it as she literally thought her aunt had another guest in the house because there's not a clean handoff. The aunt is leaving, which is how Rita is able to sneak in, and then... Betty shows up and this woman's already there and Betty seems so naive. I think she just literally thought, oh, my aunt didn't tell me there'd be another person here. Well, yeah, of course that at first, but she figures it out when the aunt calls 40 minutes later. Aunt Ruth is like, who? There's no one sleeping in my bed. I mean, she does eventually realize she's been had. Again, your instinct would not be to hang out. What keeps her there? The money? The good instincts? The Canadian upbringing? Yeah, they're, they're just nicer up there in Canada. I do take it as this is that part of Betty slash Diane that is just naive and sweet and innocent that, oh, I'm going to help this injured woman out. Yeah, I, I took it as that too. Yeah, she shakes her hand. Again, but this is a character, again, she says, I think in one of the, the most important scenes, she's just, when she's babbling on and just thinks this is a guest in the house, she's just like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a famous actress. I mean, it's more important to be a great actor, but I could be a star. And again, this woman represents what she wants to be. It's the key to what she's going to be. And then they pull that key out and... The box is going to be the audition, you know, what she's going to go for. She's going to supposedly get in a box and mime a song and she could be the star of this new movie. That is the weirdest audition. Why would you just lip sync for an audition? You're not going to read any lie? Are you, are you lip syncing the whole film? Well, that's the second audition. Yeah, exactly. That's the real audition. The yeah. better one. Yeah, there's the incredible scene. Oh, I thought that's the box you were talking about was that sound booth. Oh, I was. I'm just saying the break part, the, the part that is going to make someone a star, and it doesn't end up being Naomi Watts, but that is happening in the box. That's the box you want to be in to get your big break here. And I again, the, the key box metaphor to me feels like she is unlocking what it takes to become the other character. 
And it is really a great scene. I think this scene is why Naomi Watts is a star, you know? And truthfully, it helps Lynch's manipulating the audience, right? Because you've got a whole bunch of Hollywood, I guess, former bigwigs. We find out from the casting agent who is not played by Joanna Ray. I wondered if that was a cameo when he's talking about the best casting director in Hollywood. But we do have James Karen from Return of the Living Dead in this interview. Yeah, I noticed that. I really respond positively usually when a film is mocking Hollywood. And this scene does that so perfectly with, I believe the director is Bob, who just is the worst director, like gives the worst direction ever. <laughs> and you're you're going to find out that this is the director that didn't hire Naomi Watts in another reality. Ah, but is it? I'm confused because this is the name of the director that didn't hire her. But when she goes across the street to the singing one, that is the Sylvia North story that she didn't get the lead in. So I don't know. I do love this because you are always in rooms just with too many people. When these things are going down, there's always like, oh, yeah, and of course we have the lovely Martha. What What is Martha doing there? What is Julie doing there? What is all these people doing in this room? This should be a very simple come in and give a reading to the people that are should be excited to see her. But instead, so often, all my actor friends tell me about how these horrible auditions happen where they could be on fire and no one is looking up from their phones. No one is paying attention to you <laughs> as you pour your heart and soul out here. But this is a Sunset Boulevard moment. She's doing it at Paramount. There's a very famous scene in Sunset Boulevard where Norma Desmond, this retired actress, comes back to be a star and comes through that gate it's probably the most famous gate in all of hollywood could they not show the sign because it's a different studio putting this out because it is weird that they don't show that it's paramount they don't need to if you're in the know i suppose but yeah i do have to believe that with universal putting this out they just didn't want to promote another studio but i do think it's this scene that got naomi watts because she's been playing betty so naive and when we see her rehearsing it earlier she's playing the dialogue so cheesy so stereotypical again very melrose place and then here to not only see her give the performance that she gives it's the first time we saw her angry in that rehearsal i was like oh i didn't know you could even hit that range what she does is she plays it like every other actress i mean it's said that everyone reads it the same way and i think that's what pushes her to do it the way she does if everybody plays it the same way she has to improvise think on her feet and i think it's the fact that the creepy actor is like we're gonna play it close is what gives her the inspiration woody cats uh, it's just got that creep again, true to Hollywood, like casting couch vibe. We're going to play this one close and I'm going to rub up on you. Yeah, it's he's repulsive and she makes that work for her. She's actually able to take that and play it. Now, notice the lines that they're running here, that she's going to kill him for this. And that she, in order to become a star, she's going to have to pretend to love a man that she does not. This is obviously a big theme about the falling out between the two women later into the story. This is where that transformation is happening. One is falling under the limelight of what it is to be a star and maybe not being true to her own nature and disposition. Yeah, and she talks about hating both of them, herself and the other person by the end of it. Yeah, we'll definitely see that play out when we get to reality too is a lot of self-loathing as well as just being spurned by a lover but the performance she gives there is tremendous i mean we're seeing an audition but it's would be easy to just see that scene 
outside of this movie and then everybody in the room applauds and just freaks out except for the director the director's an idiot <laughs> but everybody else telling you that's the director that didn't hire the original diane well that's a reading in the reality in dinner she said i wanted the lead but bob hired carmilla so is Bob really this inept or is she thinking of Bob as inept to paint herself better in this fantasy? Yeah, no, I agree. She's painting him as inept to justify what she's going to go through. That The only reason she didn't get hired is because it's that director's fault. Or is it because of Mr. Roke? I, I would say the reason is she was loyal to Betty, right? She wanted to be true to her friend, love, whatever you want to call it. At this point, we're in the pilot, so they're friends. They're whisked away to the real set where, yeah, people are in the sound booth box and Adam is there. He listened to the cowboy. He's willing to hire the mobster's choice for the lead, even though you can sense his complete apathy towards it. it I, I thought it was interesting to note. Someone does tell him at some point, you were going to hire someone else anyway. It wasn't like they told him you couldn't have your choice. He doesn't know who he wants to hire. He knows when he'll fall in love with it. He's looking for the girl, but he doesn't know who that is. He just resents being told this is what you have to do. It's kind of a temper tantrum that he's having. And it should be said, like when he meets that cowboy, which is one of the most ominous scenes in this film, it's so bizarre. The electricity flickers, the cowboy appears. Hey, this is all about having a good attitude. If I see you one more time, you've done good. If I see you twice. Then we got picked up for a series. <laughs> Again, I love the scene, but what does it have to do with this movie? And there are just so many people wanting to be Bob and Little Man. We also have back at the courtyard, some drunk, maybe psychic woman who's banging on the door saying someone's in trouble and that did feel like the log lady or the tree yeah <laughs> i definitely got a log lady vibe off of her and we don't need to have that many characters with the mystical tie if this is a close-ended story i agree there, there is stuff that could be cut but if you are this paranoid actress that believes the whole hollywood system is against you this is going to go in some real strange places with the cowboy and mr roke and you know just the imagery to, to see this kind of delusion come to life that this is why i'm not a big star because all these mechanizations out there i like that representation we're seeing and here's the point where i lose my patience and I am about to turn on this film and give it a red arrow. We're 90 minutes into the film, and I realize these goddamn plots are not coming together. We did get Betty to walk onto Andy's set, and they kind of make eye contact while the fake Carmilla, the blonde Carmilla in the dream, is singing and gets told that she's the girl the mobster's choice yeah i did actually think this was going to go a much more traditional route and because of the way adam keeps looking at betty that he was going to confuse her with camilla and hire her thinking he got camilla and then we get i guess wacky hijinks with the gangsters i got confused i mean at one point we're gonna have three different blondes with rachel haircuts you know <laughs> so it's i had to look up to see if this carmilla after i was done was this carmilla played by Laura Herring, because she's going to play a different Carmilla later. But no, this is a different actress. Yeah, they were going a different way about it. The point is that every woman is being told to be Camilla. Camilla is the vision of success. 
You're hammered into that. No one is that. They're made into that. They're manufactured into that. Marilyn Monroe was Norma Jean. She had to do terrible things to her body to become that icon. And so that's what I'm seeing here is that, yeah, it's the girl is whatever the outside forces pick and then mold into. It's not something you can be through talent. I mean, that is, I think, a lesson. That is making me connect some dots here. Why, you know, I thought it was a weird audition to just go and lip sync. But yeah, if you are just trying to manufacture the perfect female actress, yeah, it doesn't matter what your voice is. It's just about that look. Can you pretend to act well? So yeah, that does make sense. I'm, I'm starting to connect some things here. Yeah, no, to me, that's for the third time, that really felt important. Another thing that felt important too is Coco, who we haven't really talked about, but she runs the apartment complex. Real actress. Yeah. And Exactly. He's a musical star of the 50s. And Miller, she is, is the one that plants the idea. If you have a problem in that apartment, Betty, get rid of it. That is where the idea of maybe killing Laura Herring's character begins to take place. But it's at this point they're going to start to investigate Rita's identity. They go to Winkies and they're served by a waitress named... Diane, and that's going to trigger a memory. And I'm just getting pissed off, though, because it's not cohering as a movie. It's not feeling like a movie. There's too many separate plots that aren't coming together. By the time you're 90 minutes into a movie, you should have a cohesive plot on know how characters relate. Even if it's an ensemble piece like Crash or Love Actually, you need to have the common threads between them. And I'm not seeing common threads other than these are a bunch of people living under semi-violent circumstances and trying to game the Hollywood system. I guess the difference in Lost Highway, by this point, you're seeing the other side where you can make those comparisons. We haven't got here yet in this film. It's still on one side. And Lost Highway has a single plot thread. It's following first Bill Pullman, and then Bill Pullman turns into Balthazar Getty, and we're following him. We have a single point of view character. Here, we're hopping all over the place with point of view characters. We've got a very large ensemble of characters, like Twin Peaks itself, for the sake of fleshing out stories for years to come. But some of this needed to be trimmed. Some of this needed to be cut. And while I know this is originally conceived for TV, what's working for me and why I'm going with this big ensemble is because it is lampooning the Hollywood system. So it makes sense to follow a director and go with these mobsters for a little bit. I, I agree. I forget about Rita and Betty at one point because they are out of the picture so long, but they're going to come back. That is my really complaint. Now that I can see the movie for what it is, as opposed to the failed pilot in the series that I wanted that it didn't end up being, I can now just see, oh, well, if we just focus on Betty and Rita, it is a rather interesting story about how an aspiring actress becomes the movie star and it doesn't necessarily work out for her. But in order to really get the feeling of that, this thing needed to make choices in editing. And Lynch just hadn't come around. He had made the decision he was going to make a movie, but he hadn't come around to the idea that some of what he created, as magical and wonderful as it is, doesn't really serve Betty and Rita and the transformation they undergo very well. It just comes way too late that at 90 minutes, 
they're going to find the dead body. Yeah, things needed to tie together more sooner or things needed to be cut out. But there's too many stories that may be in service to mood, but they're not in service to a coherent film that has major characters, minor characters. It's all plots. I don't feel like there's subplots because, I mean, we spend so much time with Adam. I don't think that's a subplot, but yet did we need the scene of him smearing pink paint and fighting with achy breaky i laughed i I liked when billy ray said that's no way to treat your wife no matter what she did but it doesn't serve this movie and there were some harsh cuts made out of fire walk with me that i said man i wish i could have seen that back in the film and downloaded a fan edit here i'm the exact opposite darlings needed to be taken to the executioner i'll agree with you there's stuff that should be cut i felt that way with lost highway i just feel with lynch they're such emotional films you either get that vibe or you don't it sounds like you're not getting with this vibe because you want more of that murder mystery with this one i'm just grooving with more than i did with lost highway though And I will say that having lived in Los Angeles for a decade, it was fun to just recognize things. Just things felt true. Maybe it's an inside joke, but I just felt like, yeah, just them going to pinks and and just the little touches. There are just things that feel like, oh, okay, he gets this town. He knows what he's talking about. And so I did like what the, I'll call them extraneous, or the supplemental storylines were doing. But to me, again, I'm only talking about the movie that I want. Maybe to somebody else, all those scenes are pivotal and you can connect all the dots and suddenly their movie is created out of it. For me, this movie is about an actress trying to be a movie star and the pain and the death that it causes, not necessarily literally, all metaphorically in order to transform. But does she want to be a movie star? She says it. She does say that. But when we get to the prime reality, I think she wants love more than she wants fame. Well, no, I think she that's all she has left because she didn't get that fame. She had that relationship. I don't buy that this is a story. To me, that most of this is a dream and the reality was that this was a lesbian melodrama. Just, I don't like that. So I'm not inclined to buy that interpretation. You just aren't engaging on the narrative, though. You're not offering an alternate interpretation. What I'm saying is I don't really care about trying to find what the truth is, what really happened as opposed to what was a dream. When you're going through the creative process of trying to become another character for the movies, parts of them are yourself, parts of them are the character you meet, you meld, you make out in a bed naked, apparently, and then one dies away and then one goes on in the limo. Yeah, I think what Lynch does, and we've been discussing this since Eraserhead, because that is perhaps his most abstract film, it's about emotions, it's about ideas, and he's trying to give them a body, but... I don't think narrative is the most important part. It is more about where is your mind floating as you're watching all this imagery. It It isn't a standard narrative. I don't think most of his films are. There's Elephant Man, Straight Story, but most of his films, when he's the auteur of it, I don't think that's his concern. It's about how do you float through this. And I definitely, when it, especially when it comes to Lost Highway, I like the vibe, but I also like the puzzle box nature of many of his movies. Not the Straight Story and not necessarily the Elephant Man, but I I like the interpretation act. I like trying to get at 
what was in his mind. What did he see as real? I believe when he writes a story, he does have a narrative in mind. He's trying to tell something, but he's telling it abstractly. I'm trying to interpret his art and figure out what his intention was. And I believe that there is a reality and there is a fakery here. And trying to know what is real and what is not is what he wants us to do. On the DVD release, he even included like 10 clues to figure out the reality of this movie. And I understand he was pressured by the studio to do that. You can Google to see what those 10 are. But that tells me if there are clues, even if he was at gunpoint giving them to us, that there is a reality, and I find that the more interesting thing to discuss. The reality is stars die, stars fade, and that even our great ones. Marilyn Monroe ended up dead in a bed, just like this character, Diane Selway. And keep in mind, Lynch wanted to tell that Monroe movie. That was when he and Mark Frost got together. That was the first project they worked on. I think that he's, what he's saying here is that at the heart of Hollywood, it's pretty bad for women. It always means that they get whacked. I gotta ask, when they find this dead body in this apartment, the first great Lynch mystery is, how did he create the baby in a racer head? The second one should be, where did he find this corpse? This thing is horrifying looking. This looks like a real bloated dead body like it was hard to look at in the pilot it was supposed to be a mystery right this was the version of who killed laura palmer who is rita how does this dead body relate diane yeah how is rita no diane selway i believe that she would have been her own character not a phantom and that that would have led back to a trail of mobsters Maybe it was even killed by, I think, probably Joe would have been behind that. Very possibly, or maybe Rita herself. We don't know. I mean, again, the fun with amnesia stories is you could have a good character who used to be evil, a Total Recall type situation. But I did look to see if this was Naomi Watts, because later on, we're supposed to think this is Naomi Watts's rotted corpse. And I don't believe that is Naomi Watts. Yeah, no, but I think they all are. On some level, I think all of these women have sort of a generic, well, we can make you into whatever we need to. And, and it's just women at different stations. I mean, it's that blonde bob. Naomi Watts has it. Camilla in this first half has it. We're going to see... Diane get it when she puts on that wig. Yeah, exactly. That they're all, at some point, they can be in that shape and then manipulated to how they want. And they're all at various stations of their life. It's all kind of what happens when people come to Hollywood that fresh off the airplane with a bunch of money or whatever, they're looking pretty good. But a couple of years later, yeah, maybe they're a waitress or maybe they're a corpse or maybe they're a hooker hanging out at Pink's or. But they all seem true. Or maybe they're the drunk woman in the courtyard that bangs on. Maybe they're the bum. I mean, I, again, I think on some level, all these women are the girl. This is what this town does to girls. Do you think that was still the case in the pilot? You think that was going to be the entire series? No, no. I, th I think the pilot and what Lynch conceived of is radically different than what this film is. But you could see that with Twin Peaks, he had to come up with an ending for the European cut. And that really did shape where that TV series went with Bob. And, you know, that, that wasn't stuff he had conceived, from my understanding, until he had to make it up for the ending. And same thing with Club Silencio. I mean, I do think that once they get out of this death scene, that clearly the Diane that Rita thought she knew has been whacked. 
And what are they going to do about it? And when they run out, there's that weird camera moment, right? Where the ghosting effect. Yeah. And I thought for sure this is where the movie began because it's the first time we've seen anything like that in this movie. But no, that was in the pilot. I was a little shocked. I thought that honestly, on my second viewing, I'm like, okay, this is where reality is starting to warp for the first time. This is where if we take this as my reading that Diane is asleep and she's dreaming that she's Betty, maybe she's starting to stir a little bit and then falls back asleep for just a little while longer. But no, that was all all there to begin with. And even this uh, haircut scene where they're going to give Rita a blonde wig to look even more like Betty is all in that too. Yeah, the ending for the original script would be that after they cut the hair, they would go up to the rooftop garden and they would look at the Hollywood sign in the distance and Betty would be reminded about why she came here and feel like, okay, we're going to do this and recommit to it. And the TV pilot does something almost the same. They don't go to the garden, but after they give the makeover, then we have what's almost like a blue velvet shot of dollying into the grass to see the beetle, except it's dollying into the purse to see that blue key. And then we cut to Winkies, or behind Winkies rather, and we see that bum. And I don't think it has the box yet, but it just implies that that key will ultimately lead us back to the monster at the center of the maze. Honestly, I don't think I would have turned in for week two of this because too many disparate plots, not enough coherence, and I'm not invested in that murder mystery enough. I actually like this better. The first 90 minutes is better for me with what we get in the final 45 or 50 than it would be as an ongoing series. I don't think I'd have tuned in. Well, I do know that Lynch said that he was going to do what he wanted to do with Twin Peaks and never resolve any mysteries with this television show. The ABC execs were lying. He didn't have it all mapped up. He he didn't know what he was going to do. I think he had several stories to tell about L.A. He had been living there for decades at this point. He knew it better than his childhood home in the Pacific Northwest. And so that's what it would have been. And there was more to play with. It wouldn't just be about who killed Diane Selwyn. They could have other murders. They could have other things. But the point is you would never know what was at the center of it all. And I think that that is Lynch. I mean, what is scary to Lynch is the unknown. If you tell someone what the monster is, you've removed a huge element of fear. Not understanding the illogic of of the nightmare is where it draws its power. And I would definitely have tuned in. I would actually argue, I wish this had been a series over what we've got. But I did, for this viewing, try to appreciate all that it is instead of bemoaning a series that I felt like it was stronger conceived as an ongoing, never-ending mystery. But it's not that now. It is now, uh, well, we're now moved into the European cut of the pilot. It has a (laughs) Red Room scene. Yeah, I'll definitely say, before we get into this European cut, if this is where the movie ended, I'd Red Arrow. Wow. Well, that's no kind of ending. (laughs) Okay. Because it's inconclusive? No, because it's schizophrenic. It's all over the place. I can't connect with any characters because it's trying to juggle too many and doing it poorly. You saw the pilot, right? You saw the 88 minutes? 
I saw it after the fact, but I'm telling you where I was the very first time I watched this. I hit pause. I'm like, how much fucking left is this? I can't take this. I'm just tired. Wow. I have the exact opposite reaction. If I was watching what was the pilot and I got here, yeah, I'd be tuning into episode two. And as far as the movie goes, I want to keep watching. I want to find out what is going on. I walked out of the room and I was just like, Jesus Christ, I'm I'm glad for what comes later because it finally gave me a reason to care about what I watched. Lesbianism? Second viewing, I liked this a lot more. First viewing, I was just done. So is it just gay sex? That's what I think Roger Ebert, like, I'm like, Lynch just finally went after something he wanted to see. He just wanted to see woman on woman action in the bed. Ebert gave a plus to a straight story. Yeah, you're right. I know. But that doesn't count. That's like the anomaly. Yeah, but that's not a Lynch film. <laughs> yeah, it's not a Lynch through and through. You know what I mean. And no, it's not just gay sex. However, I'm not going to argue that it's a bad thing. I, I did not see this coming. And when Betty's like, you could sleep in the bed. You shouldn't be sleeping on the uncomfortable sofa. Betty seems so innocent. I take it as that. And then Rita drops the towel, and I'm like, wait a sec, I'm not a woman, but if I was sleeping heterosexually in a bed with another male, like I've had to for school trips when I was young, you didn't get into bed naked. Um, You usually only get into bed naked for one reason. (laughs) Yeah, you don't need to wear that wig or that towel. What's she talking about here? But it's starting to play like porno. It is like we crossed Mulholland Drive, and now we are in Van Nuys, where they make all the (laughs) pornography. Where's the pizza boy? It really is a shocking change. We haven't had much cursing, despite some violence. There hasn't been much blood. Everything we've seen so far would get past standards and practices. And now we're into hot girl-on-girl action. And I gotta say, there's something that disturbed me. Rita drops the towel, and I was back at our Return of the Living Dead discussion. I'm like, is that a flesh-colored merkin? What is going on down there? Is she a Barbie doll? Uh, They digitally obscured uh, the nether regions for home video release because Lynch was afraid people would freeze frame images (laughs) of Laura Herring. See, he's not the misogynist everyone thought he was. (laughs) (laughs) So I wondered why she looked like a Barbie doll down under. I was like, are those flesh colored panties? What the hell is going on? Uh, No, it's a digital fakery. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I think it's fair to say that because these actresses didn't sign up for this, the least he could do was not try to overdo it. Uh, It was not blurred in theaters. In, In theaters, you saw it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I watched it in theaters. Yeah, he only blurred it for DVD. Right. I mean, in the cynical me on the first viewing, it was obvious. Okay, the French are paying him to spice this up <laughs> so that it will be a, a drastic, all of a sudden, head whipping, as jarring as the car of Bobby Soxers driving into your limo transformation into an R-rated movie. All of a sudden. I feel like he should have gone back and inserted more R-rated things earlier on. I think that this is... Well, maybe the intention is to be whiplash-inducing. It's going to take a wild twist here. I mean, post-coitus, when Rita starts mumbling silencio, it's going to go full lynch here. Yeah, I agree, though. I think that he should have looked at the first part of this film and said, when I'm going to make this a solid narrative, what do I need to pick up? What should I film and insert earlier? And then what do I need to do to film an ending? And... 
the only thing that I found they added is Angelo Badalamenti saying shit, and it's an overdub. He's not even on screen, but when he spits out the coffee, it, he says shit, like this coffee is shit. But that is the only even PG stuff until this moment where... Again, I have gone down and said, none of this is real. This is all a dream. But certainly right here, it's almost like you've entered into a wet dream for, her, you know, it's like, even if everything up to this point was real, this is so out of the blue, it doesn't feel real. And then when they go to Club Silencio, it is even more not real, surreal. I would say this is where the real connection between aspiring star and icon are happening again in my abstract reading of this movie this is where the two have become one and they're able to express that and they won't have that moment again once they've created their character i mean i think this is where the movie is so to speak and after this point they will break apart and so in that way it would be more helpful if it were in the middle of the movie that that if this felt like it was happening at the dead center and it was just split down the middle much like Mulholland Drive splits LA down the middle I think it would be more satisfying for me but Club Silencio I mean again kind of like the face behind the Winkies it may not work for you as far as narrative and tying into the story, but I do think it's an incredibly compelling, unique moment. One of Lynch's best scenes ever, really. It is a great scene. I, on my second viewing, had to do a lot of pausing because I'm like, he's speaking Spanish, he's speaking French. What the hell is he saying? Yes, no, thankfully my wife was there to translate a lot of stuff for me, including figuring out that the lady was singing a Roy Orbison song just in Spanish. Oh, I knew that just from the tune. I mean, he's singing Crying. I'm not familiar with his song, so. This this one, like, got a lot of play. I mean, I don't know why I know it, but in the 80s, that song seemed everywhere. Yeah, Crying was the original choice for Blue Velvet. It's what he wanted before he got in Dreams. I think it worked out better this way, but yeah, I just want to say, I went to David Lynch's Festival of Disruption, and I've already kind of admitted on another podcast, it was a little disappointing when Angelo Badalamente actually took the stage. He was the build-up. There were several musical acts. And the irony was the best numbers were by people that had no Lynch affiliation. Robert Plant killed. I totally endorse seeing him live, even now at 70 years of age. St. Vincent, Rye, there were some great musical acts. But to watch the Twin Peaks theme perform live... Kind of dull. And then the climax of the night was this interpretive dance recreating Laura being violated by her father. And it's as bad as it sounds. Was it Lil from Fire Walk With Me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of like watching yeah, Lil present that with her scrunchy faces and blue roses. The curtain comes down. Lynch had already come out and said he's not showing any Twin Peaks season three footage. I'm thinking, maybe I wasted my money. And then... Rebecca Del Rio comes out and does this live. There was not a single person that left disappointed. It was amazing. Yeah, her performance here is astounding. And it's acapella. I mean, I almost didn't even notice that it was acapella. It is so rich a sound and so moving a performance. And it's all coming after this whole thing. And again, I'm parsing this out for meaning. There is no band. It is all on tape. What is this telling me about the movie I've seen? This is when you really go inside of Betty 
Diane, Naomi Watts' head. Like, this is the, the is, ego, superego, whatever you call it. This is when you really get in there. And for me, this is all, yeah, this is about Hollywood, the superficiality. There is no ban. This is all just, it's on tape. It's all fake. Yeah, I agree. Out of all of this fakery, maybe an exaggerated performance about a visitor from out of town and a rich woman in the Hollywood Hills, that out of all of this comes what exists on tape. And that is what people see and interpret. That This is where the movie happens. Before we saw the performance prep, we saw the audition. This is kind of the movie part. And then everything that happens afterwards, the fame or the tragedy, whether you get famous by doing the movie or you marry the director or, or end up jilted and working at Denny's, again, to me, this is the centerpiece. And I want to say when Rebecca Del Rio falls and you find out, oh, she was lip syncing. Now remember, we saw lip syncing earlier in this film at that audition. But when she falls, you, you know, we saw Cookie, who worked at the Park Hotel. Now he's like the MC at this Club Silencio. That's the same guy? Yeah, it was the same guy. Oh, good catch. I didn't catch that. Yeah. He brings out a trumpet player and then it looks like he's playing and then we find out, oh, no, he's just mimicking that. But the fact they pull that again with Rebecca Del Rio and she like falls dead and that music, I, I almost stood up and just started clapping. I thought it was a brilliant moment that Lynch had pulled off there. I figured she was lip syncing because again, there is no band. The whole trumpet, it tells me she's not really performing. That's how into it I was though. Like It's just such, such a great performance. Even the idea of moving images themselves, they're not. They're just a bunch of still images that go 24 frames per second. All of it is an illusion. All of it is a dream. What this town creates los angeles is a manufactured thing that you experience in your head in your sleep in your mind in that inner state here and that's where the actor goes to to create that performance from this point this is where lock and key open right and then whatever happens next betty has like some convulsion in this performance and then the two women are crying together i'm really trying to figure out their emotional through line on this they're in sync they're moved by art yeah everything's coming together i mean if you want to read it arnie that this was a dream or a fantasy that she came up with to recontextualize this hit that she put out i mean i think this is where it starts all caving in on her and she realizes what she's done she can't tell herself that lie anymore. Yeah, I guess you're right. And this is also where they finally find the blue box. They've had a blue key, but now at Club Silencio, all of a sudden, out of this whole thing comes the blue box. Right. And this is where they went back. This was the last stuff they filmed. Everything that we get afterwards was Lynch putting a bow on it, even after they had made the TV cut. It ended with the guy disappearing in a puff of blue smoke. And so now... Yeah, what we have here is Lynch's attempts to, I would hate to say bring it to a close, because if anything, it unthreads, it unravels. And we see alternate possibilities about what it could be. We see a woman enraptured in fantasy. Perhaps, it sounds like, Arnie, you're prone to calling this the reality, that everything else before was just in a twisted woman's mind who couldn't deal with being dumped. I'm trying to figure it out, because... This is, I think, all pretty important that they go back to the apartment. I got to give them some good continuity. I mean, Rita here looks identical. I never would have guessed this was filmed like a year after Club Silencio. Betty disappears. 
Rita opens the box. It falls to the ground. We kind of go into the box with the camera as a cool angle. Yeah, we see Aunt Ruth return, and there's no one in the room. Aunt Ruth, she's back. What does that mean? What does it mean now that Betty and Rita are no longer in this reality, but Aunt Ruth is? And we're going to find out later on when Betty turns to Diane, her aunt died a long time ago. So... What is going on when Aunt Ruth is looking around? I'm wondering again, do they travel back in time? Is she like getting ready to leave or did she just come back? You know, I saw the man who fell to earth. I do feel like some movies choose to give conflicting information to always keep you guessing. That, in fact, what is is done here is intentionally to confound any theory you could come up with. There are lots of possibilities about what happens after an actress leaves a role. That's the way I look at this. Well, the reason I'm pretty sure it's a dream, though, is we then cut to Diane in bed with the pink pillow that opened the film. This is why I think when we saw the camera go at the pillow, Diane was falling asleep, and now the cowboy's going to show up and say, it's time to wake up. How can you not interpret that the two hours in between was a dream? Well, it could just be a harbinger of, okay, now we're shifting into a different perspective. I I don't think you have to take it literally that the cowboy told her to wake up and she's been a decomposing corpse for three weeks. No, I don't think she's been a decomposing corpse. I just think she's been fantasizing in bed, you know, probably masturbating futilely and... Yeah, no, Arnie, I think your reading is is valid. I'm not saying it's invalid. I'm saying I don't like that movie. I don't want to watch that movie. That is not interesting to me to think, oh, this is just some sudsy, you broke up with me and I invented a movie in my head that we wasted our time. That to me is like the season of Dallas with, with when the guy woke up and none of it happened before. To me, it was all just a dream is a real cheap write-off. And beneath Lynch, to me, I want to believe that there's something else to be looked at here. And so, again, I look at this as abstractions. These people represent things. And this is a story about Los Angeles, that it's about a woman who's bitter. Yeah, I mean, I think she ends up playing the scene that they rehearsed together, that she is going to kill the woman that she was once laughing at, that this is such a bad script that we're doing. It's now playing out, quote unquote, for real. She's going to put a hit using a hitman from the earlier scene. To me, that feels like an ending. It feels like it gives some kind of closure and some justification for including some of those scenes. But is it satisfying to people? I mean, I don't find it particularly satisfying to see Coco is now playing Adam's mother and all of these refractions off of earlier characterizations. I find it very interesting it finally engages me back in the film after i was checked out and when i watched it the second time i was paying more attention knowing where it was going because i do want to see how these characters relate and play off each other and i find the second story about the washed up actress who honestly she looks like she's on some kind of drug she's looking pretty haggard uh, Naomi Watts's character. And she's dressed like that hooker we saw in what you're calling the dream. Yeah, who knows how far gone she is. Yeah, is she hooking? I would not rule that out. The fact that she seems to be so desperately in love with Rita is now known as Camilla Rose. And Camilla, oh my God, what a bitch. You know, the way she invites her to a party, brings her there, not only does Carmilla kiss a woman who was 
the blonde Carmilla in the dream, but then also to announce her engagement to Adam. It's really like Carmilla here is being very emotionally manipulative, possibly emotionally abusive. To me, the, the power is in Naomi Watts, or seeing how destroyed she is at this point. You, whether this is a dream within a dream or whatever, just looking at this as a uh, naive girl comes to Hollywood to live her dream, seeing how destroyed she is at this dinner party, like the, the tears, this all hits me. To me, this, this is working. Me too. And Naomi Watts, she's now given us three different performances in this film. When you look at when she was acting in the what I call the dream, when she was Betty in the dream, and now. And did you guys notice the cowboy is also at the party? Yeah, she sees him a second time. Yeah. Bad news. Yeah, I hate that. I actually am resenting that they're trying to just stick square pegs into round holes here. It doesn't work. The cowboy doesn't work in the scene. Stop it. The old people coming out as little people and attacking her. Stop it. It doesn't work. One of the rabbit holes I went down, which is when I stopped going down rabbit holes, is that the old people didn't even exist. They're manifestations or personifications of when Betty was a good person before she became completely corrupted by L.A. lifestyle. And Yeah, that's what it is. You're right. That's exactly what it is. It does remind me a bit, if you've seen Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Grandma Preston. Yes. <laughs> it did remind me a little <laughs> bit of that. But yeah, I took it as they were this symbol of innocence. We did get those scary grins from them. That was some foreshadowing there. But yeah, now they become these, this nightmarish thing. What was once innocent is now scary nightmarish yeah what when she started this she had such high ideals and they were hoping the best for her and now those very hopes are the things that are killing her and driving her that and guilt i mean it should be said that whether or not this really happened i don't think it actually happened the way that they're presenting it i think this ending is a fantasy that they find a secret path up to this party it feels that way to Naomi Watts' character. It feels like being spurned to watch another girl get your part, get the love of the director, become rich and successful, all of the things she came to this town to do, and she's going to live undiscovered, possibly unloved, falling yeah, into possibly drug addiction, or at least ill care. Yeah, driving her to suicide. That is the road that coming to Hollywood could lead you to. It is not a straight path to fame and fortune. But along this way, we get so much Lynchian symbolism. You know, again, like I mentioned, we watch Diane like trying to masturbate and not able to. And we're not seeing necessarily a linear timeline because... We flash back and we see Betty and Camilla. It's the second gratuitous sex scene of the film. And Lynch makes a point to pan over to this ugly piano ashtray on the table. But earlier we saw the lady in 12 who apparently switched apartments here coming to get her stuff. And she's like, this is my ashtray. I did wonder if that was implying that they had a relationship, that she did try to move on to someone else and just couldn't get over Camilla. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. And in fact, you could even say that that is Camilla and she's just not, you know, as in love with her anymore. I mean, again, all of this is so subjective at this point. I don't see this as the reality exposing the lies of the dream. I see this quite the opposite. This is the fragmentation of all the possibilities that could be once you dedicate yourself to the craft of acting and commit to becoming the vision this town wants you to be. 
But all of these readings, they contradict one another, but they all feel true to me. All of them have a reality to them. You can be moved by any moment here. But let's see how moved we are. Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend Mulholland Drive? Jacob. It's so weird. I think this could only happen in a Lynch retrospective where I feel like he's remade another film that I didn't necessarily respond well to. I feel like this and Lost Highway are so similar. You, you could almost have the same kind of readings about a killer who's trying to create a fantasy to justify or to come to terms with what they did. And yet I responded so different from the two. That one I, I gave a week not recommend to. This one, I just, things work for me here. And, and I don't know why, except that I think Lynch works on more of an emotional level. And so if you, if it hits you right, you could go with it. There are things that I like here that, yeah, they feel like a TV show, but I love the lampooning of the Hollywood system. It, it's, it's something that's almost always going to win me over in a film when you're going to thumb your nose at, at what this city is. And maybe that's because I've lived here almost my whole life, but I like the, the mysterious vibe when you're trying to find out who Diane is. And then when it goes full Lynch with Club Silencio, I, I just think his artistry here with Rebecca Del Rio, there's just so many moments where they hit me this time and it just worked. And I don't know if I've been able to get the key to the lock any better than they do in this film and unlock it and try to figure it out. But I like all the images. I like what's flowing by me. I like the things I'm thinking about during this. And I think that's what's appealing here is that if you thought Lost Highway was a little too abstract, I think there's more a little more stuff to sink your teeth into here. So yeah, this one for me is a strong recommend. Stuart. I like both. I want to say I like Lost Highway. Yeah, I thought it was a, an interesting portrait of, of many things, including personality disorder. Here, this is, uh, if you ever wanted to know what it's like to be concussed, I imagine it, it feels like this. <laughs> I can almost see the reality of things. I can see patterns and themes. I can see things binding together, and yet I can't make it work. I mean, it works because it's set in L.A. L.A. is so based on the false promise of stardom. A lot of these are cliches at this point that, you know, Lynch is able to revitalize all of that and have a really new take on what it is for people to subject themselves to this town. I like Los Angeles, maybe not as much as David Lynch, but I don't live there anymore because I didn't want to go through this anymore. And <laughs> so I watched this movie with a strange mix of nostalgia love and yeah contempt i mean i think that this works as satire i think it works as a valentine i think it works just as a dedication to women and actresses trying to give their craft what they give at their best when they're trying to do their best work and what gets taken from them by a town that wants the girl it's not one of my favorite lynch movies but i definitely feel like if you didn't like it like i did in the first time take some time off Listen maybe to some other people. Listen to this podcast. Choose the ideas. Go back to it. I think it is a movie worth considering. Whether you ever like it or not, I do think it's a movie that people should see. And I think it's a solid recommend. But I'd still rather have the TV show. <laughs> I almost agree. I mean, again, I said that when the pilot ended, I didn't feel like tuning into another episode. And I give a strong not recommend to watching this movie only once. I think this is a movie that demands multiple viewings. There's a lot to appreciate in this, but it's one of those, you know, people said with movies like The Sixth Sense, I think that I hear this a lot with Shalaman, is once you find out the end, you have to watch it again to realize what it all means. And I'm like, bullshit. But 
in this case, I think that's actually the case. You do have to see it twice. And I don't groove to it as much as you do, Jacob. I think one of the things I really like about Lost Highway that pulls me in is that like hard rock score and vibe and music video mood that this this goes far more somber, far more ominous. But it still has the spookiness. It's got a lot of what I liked in Lost Highway with the dual identity murder plot. It also has a lot of what I like in Twin Peaks with the cowboy and the bag lady and all of that. And also some of the humor that I think should have actually been cut out of the movie, but would have been good in the series. So yeah, I give it a solid recommend. It's, you know, not a strong super recommend, but it's a very solid recommend. I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I enjoyed thinking about it. You know, I had fun. I actually grabbed pen and paper and I very rarely use paper. And I just started like sketching out what I thought this was and how I thought the timeline was. I haven't been this obsessed with what a movie means since Another 2001 film, Donnie Darko, when I first saw that, not the director's cut, when you see the theatrical cut, I had the same kind of what does it all mean, how does it all link kind of reaction, and I like that. I like when a movie vexes me. So yeah, it's a a recommend. Yeah, there was the age for it, right? Memento came out this same year or, or shortly thereafter, and Fight Club, and I do feel like the turn of the millennium, we now had the resource of the internet to be able to vent all our theories and share all ideas and follow conspiratorial plotting, that the world had finally caught up with Lynch. And yeah, that should mean that the movie we talk about next, the conclusion to his L.A. trilogy, it's going to be his craziest film yet. Yet I also feel like it might be his most unpopular, or at least unloved. I'd never heard of it until this retrospective. And you say L.A. trilogy, I'm curious if they're linked thematically. Well, Inland Empire is a different area of Los Angeles, sort of. I had a friend who saw this because he was raised in the Inland Empire, and he likes Lynch, but uh, apparently it's not about the Inland Empire that much. Mm, There's a great bit about Pomona, a bus to Pomona and a hole in a pussy. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll let you discover it. There are things, as always in Lynch, that were moments that I just can't shake, but is it a movie? I don't know. You gotta wait two weeks to find out, but because of course, at first we must talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. I hear the excitement in your voice there. <laughs> as much as you sold Inland Empire to me, now I'm really glad. I, I, I love Guardians so much. I'm so excited for Guardians Volume Two. My house is already littered with life-sized toddler Groots. We aren't all Groot, unfortunately. I it remains <laughs> one of the most vexing reviews of. I guess my career is the fact that I went in and saw a movie that I felt wasn't working with an audience that didn't laugh once and came out to find out that I was completely wrong. I hope I am. I'm going to watch Guardians again. Guardians 1, I'm going to give it another go. I want to say I never hated the movie. I just didn't have a particularly enjoyable experience with it. It kind of left me cold. So... If I enjoy the first one, maybe it'll make me a little more excited for volume two. But I'm definitely open to loving what everyone else seems to already pre-love. I'm seeing the first one as well. I'm headed to St. Louis. They're doing a 
I dare not call it a marathon, but a uh, double feature. We're going to see Guardians 1 on the big screen before Guardians 2. I am very excited. And in the meantime, do not forget all of our donation drives, all the episodes of Twin Peaks, Aliens, Planet of the Apes, Pirates of the Caribbean. The first show of that came out last Friday. It's available now on our Podbean page or part of the donation series. You can listen to a free preview of that at nowplayingpodcast.com or on our RSS feed in iTunes or wherever you listen. But you can find out all the details about these podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com slash donate. Thank you for listening to this show. Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me. Now, can we clear the set, please, and everyone get a cup of coffee? Well... It's time to say goodbye, Betty. It's been so nice traveling with you. Thank you, Irene. I was so excited and nervous. It's sure great to have you to talk to. Remember, I'll be watching for you on the big screen. Okay, Irene. Take care of yourself and be careful. Betty, it was so nice meeting you. All the luck in the world. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Very good. Really. I mean, it was forced, maybe, but still humanistic. Yeah. Very good. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series will be the end of everything. And go to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks related books and audiobooks. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. There are some suggestions that are to be brought forward. And I know you said you would entertain suggestions. And that's all anybody here is asking you to do. That means we should you want us to shut everything down then we'll shut everything down support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating somebody called when they couldn't get you they they told me you were as good as broke i didn't believe them so i made a few calls and you're broke i'm not broke i know but you're broke you can find a link to donate using paypal at the bottom of our website nowplayingpodcast.com We'll stop for a little second think about it. Can you do that for me? Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com It's my duty to inform you. Where you got none. Where are you hiding from? Now playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. There's sometimes a buggy. 
How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. Now playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. You guys better fix this. Now playing credit narration by Brock. I'm gonna study those lines until I know them inside out. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are and then I realize what it is. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? I agree with what you said. Truly. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. And this transports us to an alternate reality. Reality. <laughs> <laughs> it is a reality. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, travel companions. That Haven't you ever met somebody on a flight and you chatted them up and then you ended up talking while you collected your luggage? Only once and it was a dancer for Nelly. <laughs> oh. Did you get the phone number? I actually did. <laughs> <laughs> okay.